This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 205. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislaster.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I bring you my fresh new fiction and keep you informed about my life and my writing. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you chapter 63 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate, Morgan, and John have survived the dangers of the Brotherhood's secret base. In the process, though, their relationships with each other may have changed forever. When the tunnels began flooding, Morgan panicked. As a vampire, she can be destroyed by running water, and she bolted for the last remaining exit that Murakir hadn't already sealed. She got there just in time for the Brotherhood's defenders on the surface to blow up the building and seal the passage, not realizing that the tunnels were about to become a watery tomb. Trapped and frantic, Morgan was deaf to Kate's pleas for her to calm down and listen. In desperation, and seemingly out of nowhere, Kate kissed Morgan hard on the mouth. That was enough to stun Morgan out of panic mode, and with her and John's help, Kate gathered up the remaining cultists and led everyone to safety, taking refuge in the ritual chamber closest to the surface. After Kate faced down Murakir and refused to let him kill her prisoners, they were rescued by Captain Montgomery, who had finally arrived with a hand-picked team of police reinforcements. Eventually, D.A. Schubert arrived as well. Callie had struck a deal with the Vampire Syndicate to get her and Schubert away from Shaw's officers at Bayman Tower. She traded some kind of information to the Vamps, but Schubert wasn't clear on the specifics of the deal. As an exhausted Kate rested in Montgomery's squad car, though, the nature of Callie's deal became clear. The runner had turned over to the Syndicate all of the intel Montgomery had collected on the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre, including all the names of people who were connected to the cult. The Syndicate used that intelligence to launch a string of brutal attacks all over the city, targeting every alleged cult member in Montgomery's files. The message is clear. Malcolm is pissed about the Brotherhood's attacks on his people, and anyone who associates with the cult is going to pay. Morgan heard the report of an attack on Drowling Tower and rushed off to make sure her parents are all right, but not before giving Kate a passionate goodbye kiss. Kate, Montgomery, and Schubert kept monitoring the police scanner, listening with appalled fascination as the syndicate took its revenge. For all the shocking scale of the attacks, though, it appears that the Reds are carrying them out with surgical precision. No bystanders have been killed. Malcolm, always the civilized monster, is being careful in his brutality. Grimly, Montgomery tells Schubert that the cops will get to work on investigating the attacks. First thing in the morning. 
The Lost and the Least, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 63 John drove Kate back to Serenity Arms. It was well after sunrise by the time they got there, and her exhaustion at bending the ley line had been joined by the more familiar fatigue of sleep deprivation. John carried her up the stairs to her apartment, then helped her undress and climb into bed. He squeezed her hand gently and kissed her forehead, then rose as if to leave. Kate held on to his hand with all the feeble strength she had left. Please stay. John looked at her seriously, as if weighing whether she was too impaired to actually give consent. Not sex, she said. Even speaking monosyllables was an effort at this point. Just sleep. Don't want to be alone. Please. John held her gaze for another long moment. Then he smiled, very gently. Okay. He stripped down to his boxers and slid into bed behind her, wrapping his arm around her stomach. Kate leaned into him, her whole body relaxing, and in seconds she was dead to the world. When she woke, the clock read just after seven, and it wasn't until she noticed the angle of the shadows that she realized that was seven in the evening. The scent of food wafted in from the kitchen, and Kate was suddenly aware that she was ravenously hungry. She went to the bathroom, took care of the necessities, then came out to find John plating some kind of fragrant, spicy red stew with pearled couscous on the side. There was wine, too, something rich and red and dark as sin. Kate slid into his arms and kissed him. Have I mentioned lately that you're amazing? He grinned and kissed her again. Not in this context, but thank you. Kate sat and attacked the food with a will. It was smoky, hot, and sweet all at once. Not unlike John himself, she thought. Once, not too long ago, that would have made her feel uncomfortable and conflicted. Not anymore. Still, that didn't mean there was nothing to talk about. I want us to think about what we're doing here, Kate said as she nursed her wine after dinner. John looked up at her, cautious hope gleaming in his amber eyes. Yeah? Kate studied her glass. I like you, John. I like you a lot. This whole mess with the Brotherhood. You showed the kind of man you are. I think I could love a man like that. She looked up at him, trying to judge his reaction. John hadn't moved, but she saw a bit of the old wry, devil-may-care expression slide into place behind his eyes. His mask, she realized. The one he wears to protect himself. I'm glad to hear it, John said, because I'm afraid I've been falling in love with you for weeks now. But I sense a butt coming. Kate shook her head. Not a butt. Not exactly. I have questions. And concerns. John spread his hand in an inviting gesture. I know you're a priest of hedonism, Kate said. It's your job to find people and convert them. 
help them down the path of carnal liberation or whatever. John snorted. <laughs> That's an oversimplification, but yes. Right. I don't want to be your mission field, John. If we're going to do this, if we're together for real, then there can't be any ulterior motives. Your work is your own business, but when you're with me, you leave it at the door. John nodded. That's entirely fair. Can I ask a follow-up question? Kate smirked. This is a conversation, not a hostage crisis. Shoot. John steepled his fingers over his glass. My work involves fucking people, he said, putting no particular emphasis on the words. Lots of people. My assignments can last for days or weeks. Sometimes I build close relationships with my lovers, so they'll be more receptive to our message. Like you did with me, Kate said. Like I did with you. The difference being that I fell for you, which doesn't normally happen. He looked briefly embarrassed, as if he were a salesman admitting that he'd botched a deal. If what we have becomes a real relationship, my job doesn't change. I just get a new assignment. And when I'm on the clock, that assignment is going to take a lot of my time and attention. He paused, letting his words sink in. Ask yourself, honestly. How will you feel about the fact that your boyfriend is off fucking other people? This was something Kate had avoided thinking about, back when she was using John as her fuck toy and occasional sleep aid. But he was right. It was an important question. She gave him the courtesy of thinking about it carefully, and for more than two minutes she said nothing. John gave her the space to do it. I don't know, she said at last, looking into her wine like the answer might appear in the reflections on the surface. I've been cheated on before, and that wasn't something I could forgive. But this isn't cheating. It's more like an open relationship. That's new territory for me. John nodded, accepting this. Hedonists believe that the terms of a relationship should be negotiated openly. For some people, exclusivity is an important part of their relationship. For others, it isn't. He smiled. That's not something we came up with, either. People have always been diverse in the way they structure their relationships. We just encourage them to be honest about it. Kate thought about Lizzie and her dizzying network of romantic relations. Fair enough. I... I'm not sure yet how I'll feel about you sleeping with other people. I don't think I'll have a problem with it, as long as you always come back to me when the job's done. That's the thing I'm really worried about, I guess. If you're going around having sex with all these other people, how do we keep what we have special? It's going to take work, John admitted. And time. And talking. His expression turned a bit sheepish. And to be perfectly honest, I don't have a lot of experience with this side of relationships either. But I'm willing to put in the effort if you are. Kate smiled. Okay. If I start to feel bad about the way things are going, can we talk about it then? Of course, John said, with a note of approval. And if you're comfortable with some things, but not others, that's something we can negotiate. Morgan has a lot of experience with this from the kink world. If you're looking for someone to teach you how it's done, I'm sure she'd be happy to help. That reminds me of another question, Kate said. What's up with you and Morgan? I know you've been friends a long time. I know you used to be lovers. 
What are you now, exactly? Now it was John's turn to think carefully about his answer. Morgan will always be special to me, he said at last. I do love her. I haven't been in love with her since we were teenagers, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't still attracted to her. I would play with her again if the circumstances were right. He looked up at her and raised his eyebrows slightly. What's up with you and Morgan? I saw the way you kissed her last night. Kate blushed so hard she was afraid her face might burst into flame. I don't know, she said, frustrated. She's had a crush on me since forever, and it makes me uncomfortable sometimes. I've had to cut her off occasionally in the past. But I care about her a lot, and I needed her to calm down in the tunnel back there. I thought kissing her would work. She looked down at her wine again. Maybe it worked too well. Now I feel weird about it. John leaned in, his expression curious. Interesting. Try something for me. Close your eyes. Think back on that moment. Really picture it in your mind. What do you feel? Kate closed her eyes and consulted her eidetic memory. Immediately the sensations came flooding back. Morgan's mouth on hers, her arms tightly circling Kate's waist the scent of her perfume, the feel of her skin under Kate's fingers. Kate's heartbeat quickened, and between her legs she felt the first stirrings of her arousal. Her imagination served up another image for her consideration. Kate and Morgan lying in bed, their flesh completely bared to one another, as Kate traced gentle kisses down Morgan's alabaster skin. Prophet, help me, Kate whispered her eyes snapping open. She stared at John, baffled at her own mind and body. What's happening to me? Am I... Am I bi now? That doesn't just happen, does it? Not usually, John said. He was still looking at her with profound fascination, like a scientist who had just made an exciting new discovery. But I think in this case there's an explanation. Do you remember what you told me about the first time you visited the temple? Yeah, Kate said automatically. Miss Fallon said I picked up some of your essence by accident. Something to do with my weird, not-completely-human ancestry or whatever. Right, John said. You remember what happened when you got home? Miss Fallon took me to her suite to get cleaned up. She had me shower and get in her hot tub, and then... Oh, gods. Then Miss Fallon, Kate's succubus landlady, had gotten into the hot tub with her both of them completely naked. Kate had let Miss Fallon give her a glorious massage, and when Kate was relaxed enough, the succubus had very gently fed on her, kissing her forehead and drawing off the essence Kate had absorbed. And through it all, Kate had kept on thinking how beautiful Miss Fallon was. You absorbed some of my essence, and it changed the way you thought about Miss Fallon, John said and that was after you'd just been in the temple for a little while. We've been having sex for close to two months, Kate. And I'm bisexual, with a very high sex drive. Kate gaped at him. But you were feeding on me. Shouldn't you be picking up my essence or whatever? John shook his head. Humans don't have essence in the same way Adra and Daedra do. I was taking some of your soul, your life force— 
which I guess is roughly equivalent. But we don't know how this power of yours works. Who's to say something else wasn't flowing in the other direction at the same time? Kate sank back in her chair, her mind reeling. So, being with you is... changing me. Changing my sexuality. She looked up at him. If we stopped, would I change back? John shrugged. Who knows? We don't really know anything about your abilities. Maybe my essence just sits there inside you, layered on top of your own preferences. Or maybe you... digest it, or something. Maybe if you hold on to it long enough, it becomes a part of you. He hesitated. Either way, is it so terrible? If us being together means you're bisexual now, is that an awful price to pay? Kate blushed again. I mean, no, of course not. It's not bad, it's just... it's different. And I didn't sign up for this, you know? I know you weren't trying to do it, but you changed me. I had this picture in my head of who I was, and now I'm something else. John's smile turned a little sad. Don't take this the wrong way, Kate, but it seems like that's true in a lot of ways. She actually flinched at that, but he had said it kindly. It stung, but it didn't hurt. I guess so, she admitted. John reached across the table and took her hand. Look at it this way. Whatever else may have happened to you, you know that this weird, non-human ancestry of yours makes you immune to mind control. So whatever you feel, however your perceptions and body responses and whatever might be affected by my essence inside you, you're still you. You still get to decide what you do about it. Your choices are your own. Kate looked up at him again and squeezed his hand in return. The mask was gone now. His eyes were open and honest, and the amber irises shone like afternoon sunlight. She looked at his devilishly handsome face, his curling ram's horns, the flash of pointed canines when he smiled, the dark little claws that tipped his fingernails. Behind his chair, his spade-tipped tail bent in slow, sinuous curves, its every move somehow deeply suggestive. He was not the sort of man she'd ever thought she would take home to meet her parents. He was not the nice, normal guy she'd thought she wanted. He was already changing her, just by being with her, in ways she could only dimly understand. But he was a good man. She knew that now. Good, and loyal, and kind, and in his own way, courageous. If she let herself, she thought she could love him. She still didn't know if that was smart. It was possible her judgment was being influenced by his own essence inside her. But John was right. It was her choice. And here, now, she chose to be with him. Kate rose to her feet, still holding his hand, and guided him back to the bedroom. Jared wasn't sure how long he lay on the cold, wet stone beside the underground river. By the time he had recovered enough strength to climb the ladder to the surface, the sun was already high overhead, the shadows at street level more or less directly under the skyways that cast them. 
He walked in a random direction until he found a public lift tube, then rode it to the second Skyway level, the solidly middle-class part of town. He looked around warily for police cruisers, but none were in sight. That was good. Jared intended to report in, but not until he had taken some precautions to ensure his own safety. He'd already been burned once because he trusted the wrong cops. Now that he was off the street, it didn't take long to find a bus stop. Jared didn't have any money. His wallet, phone, and other personal effects had all been lost, somewhere between the kidnapping and the flood. He was ragged, wet, and hungry, and probably smelled like a sewer. He sat on the bench at the bus stop and waited for someone to happen by. The first few people who came to the stop eyed him suspiciously before moving on, apparently deciding to catch the bus somewhere else. Eventually, though, an older man in a rumpled tweed jacket sat down on the far end of the bench. Jared caught his eye and nodded to him in greeting, and the man returned the gesture. Pardon me, Jared said, summoning every scrap of dignity he could muster. I was wondering if you could make a phone call for me. I was mugged last night, and they took everything. The older man's eyes widened in surprise. He leaned in closer to Jared, as if he couldn't see very well, and frowned as he looked him up and down. Merciful heavens, the man murmured. They did a number on you, didn't they, friend? It was pretty bad, Jared agreed. I have some friends who can pick me up, but I don't have a way to call them. Would you mind? Oh, not at all, the man said then pulled the phone out of his jacket pocket and passed it to Jared. It was a simple, older model, with oversized buttons and a small screen. It didn't seem to have a data connection, or even a way to send a text message. He dialed information services and had the operator connect him to the number he was looking for. A woman's voice answered. Westfall Academy, how may I direct your call? Code purple, Jared said. Is that right? I hope that's right. I've never had to do this before. Understood, sir, the receptionist said. What is your location? I'm at bus stop number 4985A, Jared said, checking the sign on the shelter. Do you require medical attention? Jared thought about the torment his body had gone through in the last 48 hours. Probably a good idea, but I'm not bleeding out or anything. Very good, sir. Someone will be there in fifteen minutes. Thank you. Jared rang off and gave the phone back to the man. Thank you so much, he said. The older man patted his hand. Of course. If we won't look out for each other, what's the point of it all? The bus pulled up to the stop, and the man rose to his feet. He gave Jared a stiff little bow and smiled. Good luck, son. Then he boarded the bus, and the doors closed behind him. No one else approached the bus stop until the fifteen minutes had elapsed. A nondescript gray sedan pulled up and rolled down the passenger side window. The driver was a dark-skinned woman, probably of mixed ethnicity, with long, straight black hair and a red-and-white floral-printed dress. Jared didn't think he knew her, but something about her seemed eerily familiar. She met his eyes, and a thought appeared in his head, unbidden. Code purple? Jared couldn't reply telepathically, so he said aloud, Yes, that was me. 
The woman smiled at him, her straight white teeth gleaming brilliantly against her dark skin and deep red lipstick. Go ahead and get in, she said, her thoughts once again forming at the front of his mind. Jared opened the passenger side door and climbed in. As soon as he had fastened his safety restraint, the woman pulled away from the curb and headed north. She spoke aloud for the first time. My name's Stacy. I'm glad you called us. You look like you've had five hells worth of trouble. You could say that, Jared said. Thanks for picking me up. Of course. Your family. She shot him a quick look before turning her eyes back to the road. What's going on? Jared briefly summarized his experiences over the last two days, editing out any reference to the shackled god or his nightmarish vision during the ritual. The fact that he had been kidnapped and tortured by some kind of cultish conspiracy group was disturbing enough, but Stacy was less surprised by the idea than Jared would have expected. It's been all over the world net since last night, she said. A bunch of Mundy bigwigs were exposed as being part of the cult, and now someone's going after them. We think they might have pissed off the vampires. Jared blinked in surprise. The Syndicate is attacking the Brotherhood? That was not an idea he knew how to fit into his moral universe. We live in interesting times, Stacy said. Where do you want to go? I need some place to stay, Jared said. The Brotherhood probably knows where I live, and they had people in the police force. I need protection, at least until I know what's going on. The Hive is here to help, Stacy said. We'll get you set up in one of our bachelor cells for now. Thank you, Jared said again. Um, I haven't been an active member of the Psy Collective. How do we handle that? Do I need to pay you or something? Stacy reached over and took his hand. Immediately, she smiled at him, and there was genuine warmth in her eyes. Don't you worry about a thing. Your family will help you. End of story. Unexpectedly, tears flooded Jared's eyes. He gripped Stacy's hand tightly in one hand and wiped at his face with the other. He took a deep, sudden breath that was almost a sob. For the first time in a very long time, he did not feel alone. And that's the end of Chapter 63. Come back next time when Michael meets up with a friend and Callie rolls out a business proposition. E.A. Buchaneri said, The book is more important than your plans for it. You have to go with what works for the book. If your ideas appear hollow or forced when they are put on paper, chop them, erase them, pulverize them, and start again. Don't whine when things are not going your way, because they are going the right way for the book, which is more important. The show must go on, and so must the book. So, plug in your word processors and set them to blend, because it's time for the weekly writing report. I wrote 3,008 words this week, over the course of 4.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 708 words per hour. 
As of Friday night, I have gone 364 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of September, I wrote a total of 9,909 words in 20 days, averaging 495 words per day. That ranks 40th out of the 53 months since I started keeping track. It's also the third time in 2019 that I missed my goal of writing on at least 24 days in a month. I spent a total of 15 hours writing in September. Compared to August, my word count decreased by 28%, and my writing time decreased by 24%. This week, I forced myself to confront an unpleasant reality. I'm really not sure where my Kevin story is going. I've lost sight of the plot, and I've lost my enthusiasm for the project. That, much more than my work schedule, is why my writing output has been dwindling over the last three months. So, with almost 30,000 words written and the story still nowhere near its conclusion, I made the executive decision to shelve the project. I need to let my subconscious work on it some more, and move on to something I can get excited about right now. So, on Thursday of this week, I started writing the next big novel in Metamore City, None Shall Dwell Within. This is the book that will continue the plot from The Lost and the Least, and now that I'm coming to the end of narrating that one, I feel like I'm ready to jump back in and continue the tale. I finished the prologue on Friday, having written over 1,500 words in two days. That's nowhere near, say, Nathan Lowell territory, but it's much more like what I'm used to when my story ideas are flowing. Here's hoping that's a good sign. I know I said last week that there wouldn't be an episode this week. That's because I thought I wouldn't have time to record and edit the podcast before we left for Montana on Sunday. Fortunately, I was able to record the chapter earlier in the week, so I had time on Saturday to get it edited and released. This does mean, however, that I don't have audio stored up for next week's episode, so I'm still taking a week off for my Montana vacation. It's just going to be a week later than I had originally planned. Over on the Patreon feed, Carol Foote is hard at work on our next piece of bonus art. In the next illustration for A Wizard Family Solstice, we'll see Artax confronting Esme, after John inadvertently snuck her past the shop's wards. Carol sent me a preview of the scene, and I've made it visible to all patrons at the $3 level or higher. If you'd like to see this and other exclusive patron perks, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. Every bit helps, and about 91% of what you donate goes directly to me, so it's the single best way to help me keep doing this. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. 
This is Chris Lester signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.